the Old Testament reading is a reading from the book of the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 31, starting with verse 27. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will plant the kingdoms of Israel and Judah with the offspring of people and of animals, just as I watched over them to uproot and tear down and to overthrow, destroy, and bring disaster, so will I watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. In those days, people will no longer say, the parents have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Instead, everyone will die for their own sin. Whoever eats sour grapes, their own teeth will be set on edge. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. The word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. God. Testament reading from the second letter to Timothy, chapter 3, starting with verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those who have learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training, and righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. But the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations, endure hardships, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all duties of your ministry. The word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. The gospel according to St. Luke chapter 18, starting with verse 1. 
Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with a plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused. But finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on earth? The gospel of the Lord. Today, our readings lead us to think about the human longing for justice, the human desire for justice. We all want justice. We want the world put right. We want the world restored. We understand that there are things in this world that are just not as they're supposed to be. There's pain and there's hardship, there's hurt, there's inequality. But often what happens is we long, we have this longing, this general longing, and then we often get lost in the machinations of it. Like we don't know exactly how justice works or we have conflicting ideas about how justice works or things get muddied and we don't see justice clearly. We find ourselves asking questions like, what does justice mean? And okay, I want justice, but do I want it for everyone or just for me (laughs) or my group? Or how do we get justice? And if we all want it, then why don't we have it? I mean, if we all have a common longing and a common goal that we want justice, why can't we get there? Why can't we pull ourselves together and just make it happen? Everyday reality doesn't often seem to fit with our view of justice or what we want, what we long for. And this has been true throughout history. There's always been this thought that the dream doesn't match the reality and we can't quite put our finger on why and certainly not on how it can be different. So we hear in ourselves this echo of a voice telling us that things should be put right, about peace and hope and prosperity for all. But then there's other voices in our world too that maybe tell us it's just not possible, that this is just a hopeless dream or a fantasy and you just need to put it away, squelch that voice, silence that voice. Sometimes we believe that voice, those other voices, Because the ache of justice unfulfilled is just too painful. We don't see it. Why don't we see it? So maybe we just need to put that longing aside. But yet we still can't stop hearing that voice. We can't stop this longing that things should be different from how they currently are. I remember one night a few years ago, Uh, We were living in an apartment at the time, and someone in the middle of the night came through our apartment complex and started breaking car windows and searching cars and stealing things out of them. And the next morning, we found ourselves standing with our baffled neighbors who are all angry and wanted retribution from the perpetrators, from the police, from the apartment complex. Somebody needs to make this right. Somebody needs to put this back together. We long for that when we're hurt. 
But we see this in the earliest days. Like, if you're not, we've got a new playground out here in, um, here at Brush Hill. It's beautiful, wonderful kind of ship out there. And if a bunch of kids were out there playing and were playing for a long time, <laughs> and they were, they were playing together, playing for a long period of time, it's not too long before you're going to hear the phrase, that's not fair, <laughs> because we get it. There's something in us that knows things should be fair. There's something in us that doesn't even need to be taught. Justice, sometimes it's clear, sometimes it's messy. And even when justice is clear in our world, we tend to mess it up. <laughs> we make it less clear. So why can't we fix it? We also want justice on a larger scale. So not just for ourselves, but for our world. We long for justice in large-scale institutions, policing in the environment, in everyday lives of our neighbors. And to make things messier, Injustice, injustice doesn't seem to often only be carried out in the hands of other people. There are natural disasters which wipe out whole societies and we scratch our heads saying, that's not fair. All of us have friends and family members who have lived good lives, have taken care of their bodies, have struggled well, and then they get diagnosed with a terminal disease or die tragically. And we go, that's not fair. Now, it's true that we do sometimes see justice at work. We do see it clearly. It, it raises its head at certain times, and we can point to it, but we never see it always, and we never see it perfectly. And when we do see it, it often feels like it's gone in an instant. So we have a few options to do with this voice that we hear. On one hand, we can say it's just a fantasy, it's just an illusion, it's nothing. The world just is what it is. Live pragmatically. Just go ahead and get yours. Grab for power. Live according to the ways of the world. On the other hand, we could say this voice speaks of heaven far away, which really has nothing to do with this world. So let's just keep dreaming. Let's just ignore the bullies in the world and things are going to get better one day in the by and by. Well, thankfully, there's a third option. Orthodox Christianity asserts something altogether different. We affirm that the reason we long for justice is because someone has put that longing there. Someone is speaking to us. Someone is pointing to a better way. And this is someone who loves us and who loves the world. In our Jeremiah reading, we have this promise for this day when justice will return for Israel. The people are in exile. They've been told previously. It's kind of cool. The past several weeks, we've been walking the story of Israel, and we've seen like Jeremiah saying, hey, exile's coming. Be ready. You need to get yourself right, or exile's going to come. And then we see exile happens, and there's a lament, lamentations, a grief. And then we see after that that they're in exile, and God says, here's how you live here now. <laughs> Seek the peace and prosperity of the people around you and the world around you. And then here we have a promise that this is not the end of the story. There's more to it. There will be a day of restoration. A new day is coming. The time for destruction, which God has watched over, is now done. And it's time for the second phase, which was promised to Jeremiah at the beginning of his ministry, that God will not just tear down and destruct and overthrow. It's time for building and planting. At this time, Israel is suffering unfairly. It doesn't make sense in light of what they've done. The prophet uses this idea of the past generations have eaten sour grapes, 
but it's their children. It's this generation whose teeth have been set on edge, whose teeth aren't quite right. In other words, their suffering is unjust. But there will come a day when people will not suffer unjustly. God says he will establish a new covenant with Israel. New covenant or New Testament, this language, this is where we get the the name New Testament that we call, Christians call the whole second half of the Bible is from this particular passage. A covenant is a promise. In the Old Testament, we see God made a covenant with Israel and has given them the law. The law is designed as a sign pointing to God's nature. But it was just that, it was just a sign. The law could restrain inappropriate behavior. It could kind of be a a guidepost to kind of guide people or guardrails to keep them on track, but it couldn't actually change a sinful heart. The apostle Paul often calls the Old Testament law a babysitter. This is evident by the fact that God's people were never quite able to keep the law. They never quite could keep on track. But now, Jeremiah says, God is making a new promise. And this new covenant, this new testament is going to be more intimate. The time, this time, the law will be written on their hearts. It won't just be an external law. It will be a personal transformational covenant that will reside within them. Of course, for Christians, this is a foreshadowing of the day when God stepped into our world in the person of Jesus Christ. And God's spirit came to dwell in the core of who we are by faith. Because of this, we're adopted into God's family and he lives in us. Thus, verse 34 says, they will know me. Elsewhere, John writes that it is the spirit who convicts people of sin. We see that one of the spirit's jobs is to point us in the right direction, to point us towards what is true, what is loving, what is just. That God lives in us, the Christians. On the cross, the living God took the injustice and violence of our sin and the sin of the world upon himself. Jesus died under the weight of sin and injustice and somehow in doing so, exhausted it. And all the way along, Jesus introduced a new kind of justice, which is not driven by violent retribution, but by self-giving love. So somehow in Christ, justice means something different. Justice doesn't mean I'll get you back. It means an invitation to healing and restoration, things made whole. If we think about the life of Jesus, he had every right to turn to rage, according to our world standards, didn't he? His longing for injustice um, or longing for justice could have turned to anger and violent retribution. All along Jesus' life and ministry, he's rejected over and over again in incredibly unjust ways, but he never turned to violent retribution. Our God has a way of transforming things. This is how God judges. His judgment isn't punitive, it's restorative. Brian Zahn says, beware of cultivating perpetual rage. (laughs) I know there's much to be angry about, but your soul cannot bear the strain of perpetual rage. Pray more. This is a foreshadowing as well of Pentecost, when the first disciples would know that they were part of the restoration of Israel and the recreation of God's people. It's this personal covenant 
this law written in our hearts, in knowing Jesus by the Spirit, that we receive God's story, God's character, and God's desire for the world. But that doesn't mean we don't need to learn to live into it, don't need to be guided by it, that it doesn't take practice and growth and wisdom to fully live into God's kingdom. I wonder if anybody's ever seen the old TV show, Monk. Anybody ever seen this show before? Okay, good, more people than I thought. This was a classic of the early 2000s. If you don't know about this story, it's a comedy about a detective with an extreme form of obsessive compulsive disorder. And episodes often positioned Detective Adrian Monk in situations where his OCD would prove to be what he called both a blessing and a curse. <laughs> okay, So he would find himself in these situations where he could help solve crimes with his um, heightened skills and abilities, but he also, uh, it, it crippled him in other ways in his life. So in season four's episode, Mr. Monk stays in bed. Monk's assistant, Natalie, is helping him repaper his walls. So he gets out his level, and he's using his level, that thing with the bubble that tells you something straight, right? And, and claims, she claims, Natalie claims, that, the, the, that it's level. She looks at it, and she says, it's level, see? After all, the bubble is in the middle. Well, Monk says, I think it's broken, Natalie says, Mr. Monk, the level is not broken. It's a bubble on a stick. Monk then proceeds to retrieve a second level and hold it up to the first one. When Natalie asks why he has two levels, Monk replies, I use this level to check the other levels. It's my level checking level. Natalie's daughter, Julie, asks, how do you know that that one's not broken? To this, Monk replies, that's a good question. I take my level-checking level to the hardware store twice a year to have it recalibrated. Is that funny? I thought that was funny. <laughs> well, in many ways, 2 Timothy is Paul's attempt to make sure his protege Timothy and the other leaders in Ephesus are level, okay? He's trying to make sure that they are leaning into this story, into the spirit that they have received and that they're not distracted by it, that their life and ministry are consistent with the ancient story of God's faithfulness to his people and to the revelation in Jesus Christ. So Paul tells Timothy to just continue in what he's learned. That word continue in is really similar to, um, it's used a lot in John, in John's gospel, and it's very similar to the idea of abide in or live into this story, live into this reality. And he says, this has come from the sacred writings. So Paul has already, and we talked about this last week, celebrated the faith of Timothy's mother and grandmother. They have nurtured him in the scriptures, which likely here refers to the Hebrew Bible. They didn't have the New Testament because it is the New Testament, right? They're writing it as they go along. So they're speaking about the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. Now, if you grew up in church, you have likely heard verses 16 and 17 before to describe the Bible. All scripture is God-breathed, meaning it has its origin in God. Scripture is useful for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The sacred writings were formed to point us to the character of God, the one judge who is true and good all the way through, who is consistent. But it's important when we talk about Scripture to remember Scripture is not a leather-bound document that fell from the sky, okay? 
the broader text tells us scripture was created in the context of the worshiping community. So that's the purpose. That's the place for scripture is in the worshiping community. Timothy was formed by a people and a story in the midst of a people. And then second, scripture is always pointing us to Christ. Okay? Both of those things are so critical to remember because sometimes we've all seen this, but we often tend to use scriptures in ways that are outside its intention, outside of its purpose. It's like when you realize that you, you don't actually have a Phillips head screwdriver and that's what you need in that particular moment. So you might, and by you, I mean me, might try to use your keys or jam a flathead screwdriver in the Phillips screw groove to try to get it to work. It might work. It might be okay. It might get the job done, but it's not designed to do that. So the Bible, it's so critical that we remember the purpose and intention and context of the Bible rather than trying to use it outside of its intended purposes. So some examples of this. I believe that the Bible is one of history's most important collections, but it's not primarily a historical document. That's not its purpose or intention originally. I think it is historical, so don't get, don't get me wrong on all that, but that's not its main purpose. I think literarily, the Bible is a literary marvel, but detached from a worshiping community, that's not its purpose, is just to be a literary document or set of documents. This is also why we do not encourage people to just take their Bible, shut themselves off from the world, read it, and do what it says apart from community. It's always intended to be read in the context of community. And when I say community, of course, that means us, the gathered people of God. But we also need to study what our ancient family members have said about these readings. What generation after generation of saints have said about these readings. That's part of reading the scripture in community. And the scriptures must never be detached from Christ. So the scripture is intended to be a witness to Christ. When we use bits of it out of context, I grew up in a tradition where, gosh, we found superstitious ways of using the words of scripture. They were almost like incantations or you know, spells sometimes. But no, they're always supposed to point us to Jesus Christ. When we use bits out of context, detached from the character and heart of God as revealed in the narrative of Scripture, Scripture can become abusive. People have used the Bible to say things that look nothing like Jesus or the character and heart of God. That's why we have to know what Scripture is connected to, and that's what Paul is saying. For Timothy, the Bible is especially important because the people at the time are craving novelty. They're looking for things that just tickle their ears. The Bible ought always to be challenging us. And we ought not to be able to pick and choose scriptures based on what fits our agendas. All right, so Paul crams a lot of instructions into Timothy. Sometimes you find this in Paul's writings as he says, and do this and do this. And then here's four other things you need to remember. And then here's two other things that you need to make sure you're true on. And he goes on and on. He crams a bunch of stuff into here. But he says, endure hardship, be sober-minded, tell people about Jesus in season and out of season, which is a way of saying when it's convenient to do so and when it's inconvenient to do so. Paul knows that the world at the time has gone crazy and the tendency will be to reject the good news of Jesus. Timothy needs to keep his head on straight and so do we. 
the scriptures in the context of the worshiping community always pointing to Christ are our guide. Jesus' parable in Luke 18 also speaks to this longing for justice, for the world to be level, the world to be put right or restored. He tells the story of a widow who keeps pestering the local judge, begging him to rule in her favor. She's persistent in her cry for justice to be carried out on her behalf. We all know someone who is persistent in this way. The little old lady who consistently prays for her family members and will not accept no as an answer to her prayers. I wonder if Timothy's mother and grandmother were like this. I wonder if they prayed to God for Timothy in, the, in his way as he suffered for the gospel. But I also think about more recent figures who were determined to pray and to act for justice in the world. People like Dorothy Day, William Wilberforce, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who in light of their Christian conviction and committed to prayer all the way along, persistently stood on behalf of the oppressed of society, who consistently cried out for justice. At this time, widows were considered to be the lowest in society. So when their husband died, they not only lost their husbands, but they lost all social standing, all connection. Unfortunately, this was a world where um, uh, women were taught that they needed a man to represent them, to stand up for them. That's the way that the society works at that time. It's likely that this woman, when she cries out for justice, she wants justice against an adversary who is likely a member of her husband's family who will not give her what is ent she's entitled to, what her husband has left for her. It also may be protection from abuse that she's crying out for. But this is a challenging story in one particular regard. There's an immediate challenge when we read this because Jesus is indicating the judge in the story is God. But the judge sounds nothing like God. He does not fear God, he says, and he seems indifferent towards justice. How does that work? Well, sometimes I think it feels like the world works this way, doesn't it? When we find ourselves in moments of where we recognize incredible injustice in our own lives or in the world, sometimes we ask, does anyone care? Does even God care? Is God uncaring towards this? Today, in the face of injustice, many see God as an uncaring judge who is indifferent to the suffering of his people and the suffering of the world. So in a sense, we could say God plays the anti-hero in this story. God, of course, wants justice even more than we do. The judge appears reluctant because that is often our perception of God. We think he's uncaring. We think that he's distant. The judge even says, even though I don't fear God or care what other people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. So in a further indictment against this, against him, it was the judge's job to defend widows. That was part of his whole thing. He was especially supposed to defend widows against unjust adversaries. That was the responsibility of the entire people of God, especially their leadership, to speak up for those who had no one to speak for themselves. This is evident throughout the Hebrew Bible. Think today about the persistent, marginalized people in our world, those crying out and looking for justice. 
who will speak for them? The good news of the Christian faith is that Jesus is always with those who long for justice. And that ought to be where his people, his body are as well. The judge, even after being initially resistant, eventually breaks decorum. He becomes an agent of grace. He doesn't do this because of his own compassion or own justice, but because he's annoyed. Perhaps we can say that in the kingdom of God, even annoyance can be turned into an instrument of grace. St. Augustine pointed out that this parable is not an allegory. It's this traditional Jewish form of argument called from the lesser to the greater. So the point of Jesus' parable is that even an unjust judge, when injustice is shoved in his face over and over again, even an unjust judge will eventually relent and do what's right. How much more will God who loves you and loves me and loves the world, who has true justice at the core of his being, vindicate you and see that justice is done. So the call of this parable is don't give up. Continue to seek him. Jesus asks, and will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? God wants justice even more than we do. And he also wants us to be persistent in the asking, persistent in trusting him. Augustine said that the point of this parable is that the disciples should pray without ceasing. They should have the attitude of crying out and trusting in God. Therefore, Augustine says, when faith fails, prayer dies. Even deeds may be prayers if they're offered up in the right spirit. This is why I think it's so ridiculous in our world whenever some unfortunate tragedy strikes, there are two camps that develop. There's the thoughts and prayers camp and the no more thoughts and prayers camp. Are you aware of this phenomenon? When there's a tragedy, it seems like there's some that are quick to offer a trite thoughts and prayers. And then there are others who say, no, no more thinking or praying, right? And they seem to be competing against each other. Well, the Christian tradition has always argued that prayer for justice and the formation to act for justice always go together. They can't be separated. So this parable then is about what to do in the time between the times, in the times when we await the justice which has been promised and for which we long. Justo Gonzalez writes, During such a period of suffering and awaiting vindication, the only way to remain faithful is to focus continually and persistently on the promise of the coming order. We need to stay focused on God's desire for the world even when we do not yet see it. And finally, if we're honest, we don't just need justice for the world. We need justice in our own hearts because we acknowledge that as much as the world is not right, not yet right, our hearts are not yet right. There's something in us that is askew as well. Activist Chris, Chris Hertz says, through activism, we confront toxicity in our world, but through contemplation, 
we confront it in ourselves. Prayer and contemplation on Christ gets us in touch with our brokenness and then who we are in him. You could even say that this is what this lady is crying for. She's crying. She's saying, justify me, declare me in the right. The Apostle Paul uses the term justification a lot. There will be a day when God will declare those who are in Christ to be in the right. And we're justified in Christ, not because we've lived a perfect life, but because we're in him, the one who has proven true. So what's required for justification to be declared in the right? Well, the woman in Luke 18 illustrates it, crying out to the judge independence. We recognize we can't bring about our own justification. We can't fix things on our own. We need someone outside of ourselves. In Christ, we're justified not because of what we've done, but because we're in him, and we can trust that. This is now the primary reality about who we are. No enemy, no lie can stand against God's people. No matter what we face, no matter how painful or awful or tragic or just plain boring, nothing can nullify or stand against God's promise. The one who is fully true and loving and just will prove himself true and prove us to be in the right. The good news in this reading is that God will hear the cries for justice as we cry to him day and night. And he will not delay long, but will quickly grant justice to them. So in this sense, God is not like the unjust judge at all. (laughs) He does not only answer our prayers just because he's exhausted or because we've just asked him too many times or we've annoyed him to the point of his breaking point. No, that's not our God. He will not delay. It says he will respond quickly. Okay, well, that raises the question. If he'll respond quickly to justice, where is it? And why should we keep praying? Well, the promise is that God will hear our cry and respond quickly. Yet we will not see full vindication in this age, only the assurance of it. Therefore, the appropriate posture is persistent prayer, trusting in God when everything seems wrong with the world. Gonzalez says that this is about being vindicated even at a time when such vindication seems illusory. So what are we to do with our longing for justice as we close here? Like the people of Israel, we're to lean into it. We can't ignore it. We can't dismiss it. Being with Jesus will not allow us to dismiss our longing for justice. Justification in our own hearts, injustice perpetrated against us, and justice for the world require a complete dependence on God's great love. We trust that God wants justice more than we do, and he's created us to want it. Over the past several weeks in the Old Testament, the children of Israel, like I said, have walked through this grief of exile. In fact, if you look at Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's stages of grief, you can kind of match it up with Israel's process in exile here. They have experienced denial, anger, depression, bargaining, and then last week, finally, they're called to acceptance to live into this space. But those of you that have studied this know that some people are suggesting, and um, the lady who created Kubler-Ross, who created that model of grief, has now suggested there's, a, there's another stage, an additional stage, and that is finding meaning in the suffering or in the grief that's being experienced. 
Um, and that's what we see here. We see that this, they now begin to see that their pain is not the end of the story. There's something coming out of this. They begin to find meaning and hope. The period of uprooting is over and there's time to build and to plant. This reminds us of the faithfulness of God, the one who sits with us in our pain and then the one who makes things new, including writing a new covenant on our hearts. Exile, disorientation is not the end of the story. We can trust that God is faithful and we can live into that reality in a world of itching ears, a world only listening for what they want to hear. We can trust God even in that kind of a world. And if the persistent widow kept pestering the unjust judge, the one who was bent against doing what was right, how much more should we continue to lean on, to go back to, and to turn our lives over to the one who wants nothing but good for us? He is the God who stepped in our world, who took injustice upon himself, and he sits with us as we cry out. And he has promised to make things new. Now there's a call here for the church. We as the church stand with those in pain today. We stand with the world's pain, with those even when we have more questions than we have answers. And my prayer is that we might trust the one who is true love, who promises that the day will come when God's people will be vindicated once and for all, and we will seek to live into that future kingdom here and now. Amen.